0: Welcome to another edition of Exploring Mental Illness, Everything That You Wanted to Know But Were Too Afraid to Ask. Uh, This is Austin Ricketts. Derek Mulhan is out on assignment again, uh, but Carrie Ballou is also here. Hey, Carrie, how's it going?
1: Hey, Austin, it's going great. How's it going with you?
0: All right. uh, It's busy here, always busy. How are things going at Fuller?
1: Same always busy. So right now, when we do this broadcast, we are in the month of May. So we're getting ready for a couple of fantastic events. We have a behavioral health and wellness fair that we're going to be doing on June 29th. We finally picked a date, June 29th. And the upcoming or more recent to come upon us event is a our first grand round speaker series featuring our guest today, Dr. Nicole Absar.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Uh, so today we have, I guess, first time guest, uh, Dr. Nicole Absar. Hi, doctor.
2: Hello.
1: So can you
0: tell me a little bit about yourself and uh, what you specialize in at Fuller Hospital?
2: Sure. So I I have a little bit of background I want to share what brought me here into my specialty. I always had this fascination about brain, uh, but mostly I just became more involved when I lost my father. Uh, I was only four years old when I lost my dad. He died from a stroke. At that early age, I didn't know what he stroke or anything. I just thought I lost my dad. I didn't have any father all my life. And uh, so it kind of impacted me so initially with the emotional anger, but then I converted that anger to challenge that why people die from stroke. So that brought me into medical school and into neurology and to psychiatry because I thought neurology alone is not enough because you only look at the brain but you don't connect the brain with the mind. So I got into psychiatry residency and I finished residency. So I became a neuropsychiatry combining both together. But then I also felt like, you know, I connected with brain, I connected with mind, but where are the soul? what are the other part of this connection that connects the mind and brain together? So believe it or not, I actually went to yoga teacher's training and I became a yoga teacher. And I do not only neurology and psychiatry, I also specialize in therapeutic yoga for brain disorders. So this is my background.
0: (laughs) Wow, wow. It's like turning your anger into passion to just do so many things, that's awesome.
1: (laughs) That is absolutely fantastic. So from an early age, obviously, this has impacted you. So fast forward to today, how have you translated that into your work in terms of working with individuals who um, have stroke or
2: are suffering from symptoms as a result of stroke? So as a whole, not just for stroke, I just feel like brain is such a mystery. Uh, we only know how probably one quarter, not even quarter of the brain, you know. So it's a mystery because, especially for mental illness, especially, you know, it was a stigma. It was such a myth to have a mental illness in the family. So all the stroke invited me into this whole horizon of neuroscience, but I got uh, intrigued by a lot of different phases of brain disorders, including Uh, psychiatric disorders from depression, anxiety, to schizophrenia, to neurological disorder, as I said, stroke, to migraine, to different diseases like movement disorder, Parkinson's. And then more recently, the sad disease that killing so many of our older generation, Alzheimer's disease, and so many dementia that is so misunderstood. So in the most recently, my passion has been more into cognitive disorder and how it brings so many faces that are misunderstood by a lot of doctors, even doctors in the community. Because we have the stigma of dementia as a memory disease, but it's such a wrong kind of impression. Uh, Memory is just one part of our cognitive domain. We have so many other domains, so memory is just one presentation. We have so many ways you can present. You can actually have depression as a first presentation of dementia. You can actually have hallucination as a first presentation of dementia. You can have sleep disturbance, sleep disorder. They call it uh, RAM sleep, like a vivid dream, like sleep disorder as first part of dementia symptom. So yeah, so that's my kind of passion but i also intrigued by these chemicals in the brain that these chemicals make everyone different emotional experience. So like dopamine is one of the chemicals, my favorite one, <laughs> that kind of make you feel good. Everything that we are good at is for dopamine because of love Um, anything, even the drug abuse. You know, people do drug because they want things. They want the high. They want the reward. And dopamine is the reason for that reward system. So dopamine has been also implicated in drug abuse. Dopamine has been implicated in Parkinson's. When you have low dopamine, that is called Parkinson's disease. That is called apathy. That is called depression. When you have too much dopamine in certain part of the brain, we call it schizophrenia. That is what people to psychosis, so when you have Parkinson's disease, you keep something to increase the dopamine so that your Parkinson's get better. Can you imagine when you increase too much of dopamine, what you are going to have? You're going to have hallucinations. So the side effects of Parkinson's medication is almost like schizophrenia, and the schizophrenic medications, which are supposed to lower the dopamine so that you don't hallucinate anymore, if you lower too much, then you get Parkinson's. So, this neurology and psychiatry is such an arbitrary term. I mean, this is why it's time for us to unite this two specialty and make it one brain science. That this is only one part of the brain. I mean, can you imagine having two lung doctor or two heart doctors, one doing, you know. So, but for brain, it's been such a dichotomy. So unfair for the patients because it's such a tunnel visions and patients suffer because doctors sometimes don't talk to each other and they prescribe medication that can have interfere. As I said, Parkinson's medication can cause psychotic symptom, schizophrenic medication can cause Parkinson's symptom. So my passion is always that, how can I be both? Sorry, it's a long answer, but this is why I my most recent uh, implication is in neuropsychiatry.
1: No, this is absolutely fascinating. To hear your interpretation of the brain and the impact on mental illness and physical disease is absolutely fantastic. I think that, you know, I've been in this field for a while and I don't often hear somebody as eloquently as you do really look at the holistic approach to the brain. I love that statement about there should just be a a brain science. Whether it's mental illness or Parkinson's or dementia, it's brain science. All is related to the brain. So this is absolutely fascinating. I have so many questions. Yeah,
0: yeah, and it's all connected. So maybe if we could go back. When you're talking about cognitive diseases, can you just talk, uh, t- tell me a little bit about what that means?
2: Sure. So the cognition is the higher intellectual functioning um, we are supposed to be good at. <laughs> uh, this is how we separate ourselves from higher mammals, like animals, like dogs or cats. Having said that, some dogs are actually smarter than us. <laughs> you know, especially human. But, um, you know, so this intellectual function, intellectual faculty collectively comes with at least five or six domains, what we call cognition. One of them is only memory. So we have been focused on memory for the past three decades and not focusing on other domains. So we're missing so many patients who has dementia but do not have trouble with memory. So I'll give you some example that. So these folks always underdiagnosed by uh, physicians, even by specialty, because this is such a new idea uh, of uh, within last 10 years to have these five domains. So their family suffer because they don't get the benefit. They don't get the all kind of support system that otherwise they would have if they have a diagnosis of dementia or certain types. So this is the memory, just one. And then the second faculty is the language, where we able to be fluent, able to comprehend, able to name object, able to kind of familiar with uh, object naming, people's f- naming. So when you lose the naming or language, we call it aphasia. So you can get aphasic from stroke, you can get aphasic from a head injury, but you can also get aphasia as a first symptom of dementia. A type of dementia, we call it PPA, primary progressive aphasia, which is a sad disease. It is a type of front part of the brain disease where you get demented in your early 50s and 60s. It's called frontotemporal dementia, which is the frontal means frontal. Temporal is the next part of the brain. And this is a unique type of dementia, so much different than Alzheimer's because it affects the younger people rather than older people. It affects people in your 40s or 50s and it's a rapid progressive, people die, average lifespan no more than eight to nine years. So it's a rapid progression. It's so sad, I could give you one example. When I was practicing on the Cape Cod about 10 years ago, it was a time that a patient was referred by Cape Cod Hospital. I had a little practice in Falmouth. Uh, so I got this gentleman, uh, and um, I can't share personal information, but in he was a very uh, law abiding cop. All of a sudden, people noticed that he started acting bizarre. He will come and he will say, Bizarre words and obscene words, uh, very inappropriate with female peers, which is so not like him. So people thought, you know, he's going into 50s. You know, man has some excuse sometimes going into midlife crisis. (laughs) (laughs) So they didn't make into a big deal out of that until he started harassing his ex-wife to a point that he raped her in front of their granddaughter and police came he vandalized the entire house he got arrested he went to bridgewater state he was in bridgewater state for 4 years poor guy they never even you know every criminal sometimes even get a psychological testing to stand trial he never even get any psychological testing forget about psychiatric eval so he was they would treated him like a criminal which he did bad thing but nobody even question why on earth all of a sudden somebody law-abiding citizen acting so bizarre. So he got out of prison after four years and they found him in front of Hyannis, in front of a Cape Cod hospital in the bench, uh, sitting and cutting his wrist like in impulsive manner and blood all over. They got the ambulance and they sent him to Pocasset. They thought that he's now depressed. You know, everybody thought, oh, what do you expect? He lost his job, he lost his family. And um, he's just depressed. He went to psychiatry, and the psychiatrist comes and gives medication for depression, nothing worked. And then one day, you know, these Harvard uh, residents come to Cape Cod for getting some money. You know, they get moonlighting. (laughs) So they work for the weekend, and Cape Cod Hospital put them into a beautiful hotel. They work for the weekend. They go one of the smart resident from harvard came and they actually he actually was the first one that questioned that it was not psychiatric there was something wrong with his uh, you know mental state and that's how i got the referral so when i got the referral i sent the patient for a scan called pet scan pet which is a functional scan this is a great way to diagnose this type of rare dementia so I could not even wait because uh, the radiologist called me and like, Nicole, you got to come right away. I'm like, is my patient okay? They're like, oh, no, your patient is fine, but I have never seen something like that. So I went to Brockton Hospital, which was the hospital they were having the scan, and the radiologist was showing me the scan, the, uh, the spec scan that it showed in simple term, this is a scan where you assess the glucose utilization in the brain. So they give you an injection of sugar, glucose. And uh, if you have a healthy brain, your sugar should go everywhere in the brain. If the sugar doesn't go certain part of the brain, meaning that part isn't working. So in his case, sugar absolutely didn't go in both sides of the frontal lobe and the temporal lobe. And I have never seen such a massive, what they call hypoperfusion, like a hypometabolism of the brain. So, I already knew that he's pretty advanced age. So, I called the family and can you imagine family was not even assured and their families, these kids are in their teens or 20s rather than Alzheimer's kids because this is the younger disease, young onset dementia. So, they came he actually died six months after I diagnosed because most of the patient die, die from dysphagia or choking episode because choking or the swallowing reflex is controlled by frontal lobe. Mm-hmm. So they die from that. So this is a sad story. This is why I'm so passionate about this cognitive impairment, because if we're focused on memory, he never had any trouble with memory. Mm-hmm. He had behavior issue. So this frontotemporal dementia can come with two way, either aphasia or loss of speech. So they stop talking or they have severe behavior, criminal behavior. So they end up in jail, in criminal system rather than medical system. So these are the folk that have so much bizarre behavior. I know know we have time issue, but I have so many experience of having bizarre behavior that as a first presentation of frontotemporal dementia, like pedophilia in an 80-year-old gentleman who's such a nice grandfather, and all of a sudden, and then I find out that he had a severe frontotemporal dementia. So I'm not suggesting every criminal has similar, but if somebody has a first onset change in behavior or personality, they need to have a neurological evaluation because that's not should be interpreted just as a regular psychiatric diagnosis. If you don't have a family history and you have no psychiatric history all your life, and all of a sudden you're acting bizarre or having hallucination or having a first onset depression in your 60s, you better have an MRI or some kind of imaging or a neurological assessment done. So this is what the second domain comes, language. And then we have other domain, I'm not going to go details, like spatial function, the function that we get oriented around our space. So if I have to go to Virginia, I go 95 south rather than 95 north, because I will end up in Maine. So this is how my our brain parietal cortex, which tells us which way we should navigate. And that is called spatial function. That is the third domain of our cognition. And then the, we have the cognition function, the first last one called executive function. Executive function is like the CEO of our brain. You know, if you have a good CEO, uh, not like some corrupted CEO, what the CEO does in a the office, they monitor employees, mm-hmm. make money, change, make a decision making, make a budget, make a futuristic plan. This is what our frontal lobe does. So our frontal lobe make you think positive, make you think a plan, put your money in the mutual fund or in an IRA market or a futuristic idea, like what kind of job we should do, how do you make a decision, good versus bad, how do you control your impulsivity? This is what frontal lobe does. So when you lose that, you either lose that behavior, manifest as those kind of behavior, or you can't function, you can't point A to B, you can't go from A to B. So you can take a soap to the shower and you have no idea what to do with the soap. So you stand in the shower not knowing what would be the next step? So this is called multitasking. So they can't they can't do multitasking anymore. So that is called executive function. So you can have either two out of five. It doesn't have to be memory. Any of those that I talked about, either language, executive function, visual or spatial function, or memory. Two out of five, and you have to have some change in your pre-morbid level of functioning to call it dementia. So the dementia doesn't mean memory disorder. So if if I couldn't say anything enough in this broadcast, I want all my listeners to know only one gist that memory does not alone enough for a diagnosis of dementia. You have to have other involvement, like especially executive function, like a day-to-day functioning.
0: Just from an outside observer, does that freak you out a little bit about how like one Chemical in the brain, you know, going wrong can cause you to do and perceive so many different things. Uh, then you might normally, you can hallucinate, um, give you an impulse to do actions that you would never do otherwise. It just changes your entire perception of the world. I'm sure to the people who suffer from certain things, it might seem normal to them or maybe it just seems a little bit off.
2: It is. It is such an amazing uh, kind of, uh, there are really like a vivid camera, vivid, uh, what do you call it? Like a feedback that you can actually get a whole experience of somebody's mind. So you can experience how a schizophrenic feels when they hallucinate. There are some video, the life experience of medical video that you can actually experience how the feelings, the path of Parkinson's disease or path of schizophrenia. In other words, I mean, these chemicals are so, uh, we don't even know half of it. I'll give you a funny story, though. This is really funny. This is off medical side. One day I used to live in Plymouth and I used to be a resident at Tufts Medical School. So I used to have a long ride from Plymouth to Tufts in Boston. So it's a long traffic delay. Every day I'll be stuck in the traffic. So one day I'm sitting in the traffic on my right hand side and on the left and immediately on the next lane, there is a beautiful blonde girl. She's sitting there in the car. She's like me, standing in the traffic. And I see her, I'm looking at her and she's like doing 500 different things at the same time. She's covering her lipsticks, you know, she's putting her hairs and she's sipping a little water. She's answering the phone. When she looked at me, I told her that, oh my God, you got a beautiful frontal lobe. (laughs) And she's she's looking at me like, what? (laughs) She had no idea what I was talking. But that is the frontal lobe. That is the multitasking. That is the executive function that she was so good at. And so, yes, so this chemical is so intrigued. You know, sometimes it's funny, but it does. I mean, how this chemical can make things, even for normal people, and as well as abnormal perception, like hallucination, like dream, like a ram sleep which is the dream-like sleep. You know, there's a type of dementia you get as a first presentation is RAM sleep. It's called Lewy body disease. So if somebody has like a sleep disturbance and they're coming to you, oh, I just have, I don't have anything else. I just have vivid dreams and I act out. The acting out of the dream is so bad. Sometimes they punch their partner during their sleep and their partner stops sleeping with them because they get partner, you know, And that kind of uh, symptom, we call it acting out of dream or dream enactment behavior. Now we know dream enactment behavior can lead to two diseases. One is called Parkinson's disease and one is called Lewy body dementia. We know now that Parkinson's patients sometimes don't start tremor right away. 10 to 15 years before they start tremor, sometimes they go into phases of psychiatric symptom or sleep disorder, like OCD and depression is so common. I actually had a put it on my website. I just found a new article in the American Academy of Neurology. It's an article from Taiwan. It just came out that they found a linkage between bipolar disorder and Parkinson's disease. So they thought that Parkinson's patient, way before they get Parkinson's disease, they actually start having bipolar disorder. And often bipolar and Parkinson has such a comorbidity. So th- there's a linkage. Uh, we don't know if it is genetic or what kind of linkage, but this like a you know, starting to show a lot of the common uh, kind of connection between this kind of psychiatric, neurological, and other diseases. Interesting that
1: you you mentioned that. So for the listeners out there, I think I've talked about how some of my personal background, one being that I, I ended up going into mental health because my father was diagnosed bipolar when I was three years old. Fast forward 30-plus years, and my dad was diagnosed about seven years ago with Parkinson's, um, and he has been at different phases of his Parkinson's disease. And in listening to you talk about that, it brings a very different perspective. Now, me personally, looking back at my childhood, so, you know, for me, I remember my dad having, he was known for having memory issues, and he was, I would say, more so on the bipolar, is it bipolar 2 with the more depression? I never really saw him manic. I, I would see him more so depressed. And to think that, that may have been either a sign or a symptom of what we see today is just absolutely astounding.
2: Yeah, it's fascinating that how these chemicals in the brain that you talked about before make you feel so many different ways. Mm-hmm.
1: Dr. Absar, and for folks that are um, joining us, I didn't do a proper introduction. I should note that Dr. Nicole Absar is a uh, attending physician at Fuller Hospital here in Attleboro. Um, She recently came on board. Her specialty, obviously, is neurocognitive disorders. She is housed right now in one of our specialty units that is the only one of its type in New England. It's a inpatient level of care for adults who have a primary intellectual disability or developmental disability and are experiencing behavioral challenges or psychiatric symptoms. So Dr. Absar, kind of looking at the bigger picture and and knowing that you have this like co-specialty, how do you approach diagnosing and treating now of patients such as the ones you see at Fuller or patients that you've seen historically?
2: Absolutely. It's a fascinating question. Thank you for asking. Because the reason I was saying that why it's so important for stopping this dichotomy between neurology and psychiatry and how we can integrate a model that has both neurology and psychiatry together. The reason behind it is, remember I talked about symptoms are all due to different chemicals. So, if you're not treating the right chemical for right reason, but just throwing stone without knowing where you're throwing it, then all you're treating is the symptom management, not disease management. Think about migraine. Migraine patient comes with a headache. Do you take Tylenol for migraine? It's never going to help with Tylenol. You have to take migraine medication Yeah, for that. So, symptom management does not help. So, depression, as I said, can be a psychiatric symptoms. Depression can be a sleep disorder symptom. Depression can be so many. So, we have to first diagnose properly. So, when you have this integrated model, the first thing you do before you throw any pills is that understanding what you're dealing with. What is the diagnosis? Understanding the patient, listening to the patient, listening to the caregiver, understanding their clinical course, understanding their this journey, what they're going through, and then have this humanistic attitude without judgment to understand what are the priority, what are the things that they're troubled with. So then you kind of have your critical thinking and integrate this into a diagnostic model to see, okay, now I know this part of the brain isn't working and causing this type of symptom. What do I do with that? and then you start treatment with the medication. But we also know most of the brain disease, medication alone is ineffective. So that's why it's so important to have different kind of behavioral approach, treatment with behavioral therapy. So we have a lot of different kind of uh, evidence-based study showing cognitive behavior therapy, which is a behavioral therapy to change your thinking, negative thinking to a positive by changing your lifestyle, changing your behavior. Is so important for a lot of diseases, including obesity, including depression, including sleep disorder, a lot of, you know, um, and that also should be part of the treatment. So instead of having this just pill, 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 how can we change it to an integrated model and also engaging in other, um, as I said, cognitive health, the third modality other than neurology and psychiatry, cognitive health or brain health that comprises of two things. One is the nutrition and one is the physical activity. Nutrition, now we know that how certain diet can improve our brain health. There's a huge study in Scotland um, with 933 participants. They studied for a population 65 and overpopulation for a three year long study. It, the study was to see a diet that they propose, called Mind Diet. M-I-N-D. Mind Diet stands for Mediterranean and Dash D-A-S-H Dash Diet, combined Mediterranean Dash Integrated Diet f- that can implement for brain disorder. Basically, in simple term, Mediterranean diet we already know like. You know, everyone um, in Italy or any Greece, they eat that, which is basically high good fat, meaning high HDL, like olive oils, you know, and low bad fat, like the LDL, like uh, red meat and things like that. Um, but you do have pasta and rice, which is carbohydrate. So this MIND diet is Mediterranean diet without the pasta and rice, because that's the DASH diet. DASH diet is a blood pressure diet which is basically a low carbohydrate and low salt diet. So when you combine the Mediterranean diet and DASH diet together, meaning high good fat, low bad fat, and low carbohydrate, that becomes MIND diet. So they collected that 933 patient for a three-year study. They had a baseline MRI. And then after three years, they have them follow through the MIND diet. You know, a lot of people say that we can't, Do the MIND diet, they dropped out. Some people, they followed through. The people who followed through the whole three years, they did a follow-up MRI. And they found, they compared the first MRI with the second MRI. They found people who followed the MIND diet, they had a significant decrease in the brain atrophy, like the shrinkage. So that's why it's called MIND, stands for Mediterranean dash intervention diet for neurodegenerative delays, meaning it delay that degeneration of the brain. So this is what any kind of Mediterranean diet or low-carbohydrate, uh, low-fat diet is so important in brain health. So coming back to that integrated model that's so important, When I see a patient that not only diagnosis by neurology technique, not only giving medication by psychiatry, not only doing a psychological treatment with behavior, but also doing this cognitive health, brain health by therapeutic intervention like a diet, like a healthy diet, as well as a physical activity that suit your patient. And of course, I am biased with yoga because that has more evidence-based study in neuroscience that how yoga can help with depression, Parkinson's, a lot of diseases. I can go on, that would be another show, how yoga can be uh, useful for brain health. But so integrate physical exercise, physical activity with a structured routine is so important for whether we're dealing with this mental health or psychiatric patient or a neurological patient. So this is what I wanted to bring it up to this um, adolescent, to adults, or even I have even elder adults with developmental disability at Fuller Hospital. I want to minimize the pill. And just to have more diagnostic clarification first that are we sure what we're treating? Maybe we should review again why this is not working. You know, giving pills, not having the same thing over and over and have them come over to the hospital every three months, it's insanity. So we have to break the cycle and see. Maybe we should fresh look ourselves and see. Maybe we should have a diagnosis first with neurology technique. And then we have start having a treatment with a broad-based psychiatry, not just medication, with also cognitive behavior therapy, nutrition, yoga, exercise. The entire full comprehensive treatment.
0: Yeah, that ties into a theme that's been going on through the whole show, which is like a holistic approach to diagnosing and kind of helping people with different issues. Um, what would you say to listeners? who might be going to see their own doctor or um, a mental health professional, and they kind of want to encourage their professional to kind of have a holistic approach. Like, what would you say to them? Maybe any questions that they should ask or or something like that?
2: Sure, absolutely. Especially, um, I, I would definitely, if you have any, whether it's a neurological issue or psychiatric issue or even medical issue, if you do see your, uh, provider, and most physician is getting more into this model, um, you know, some more than the other. But as a healthcare participant, as a caregiver, we all have responsibility to educate among each other, because it's not a shame to get educated even from patient, uh, to get patient's view, and uh, maybe print out some evidence-based articles about how exercise helps or yoga helps with depression. There are tons of articles if you can look at the Google or even find your own way. Uh, do a little research that why it is so important to have a diet that's so healthy for you rather than think about our insurance policy. Nowadays, most insurance doesn't even cover exercise, but they will cover insulin when you get diabetes. So they don't have proactive treatment they will wait until you get a diagnosis of either blood pressure or diabetes but they wouldn't have you go to a gym start exercising and see a dietitian and start diet so that you don't get a diabetes so i think it's time for us to change our mind and clear our mind and remove all those stigmas you know especially with mental illness because i know it's the focus is the mental illness mental illness the term kind of stigma I think we have to go back and say there is no difference between a Parkinson's disease and a schizophrenia. Remember what I said? It's the same dopamine is the dysfunction in both or depression and Parkinson's or stroke and Parkinson's. This is the brain. So mental illness is a brain disorder. This is something that we have to believe in. We're not in those voodoo era, in those 70, 50s or 40s that you blame your mother for your mental illness. You know, it is a neuroscientifically proven disease. So there is no shame. There is should never be any stigma.
1: I'm just like absolutely astounded and fascinated by this whole thing. I could listen to you for hours. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned the neurology piece. Ironically, so when my dad was first diagnosed in 1983 with bipolar disease at the time, It was definitely stigmatized, but they really didn't have, the field of psychiatry was not as active as it is now and as recognized. So my my dad had gone to see a neurologist when he started experiencing symptoms. And actually that same neurologist has been following him since that time um, through his bipolar and into his Parkinson's. So I I definitely see that connection in terms of
2: that, looking at it as a holistic brain disease. But Carrie, I I would definitely say your dad is so lucky that that doctor was so good that, you know, he provided both diagnoses by himself. This is, I really compliment that doctor so much that uh, he had the heart and he had the mind and he had the passion to take this model even back then. And uh, that's such a wonderful... You should compliment him for uh, on my behalf. <laughs> I definitely
1: will. I actually am gonna drop off your your flyer to his office so that he can maybe he'd be interested and you get a chance to meet him yourself. So kind of just looking at this this bigger picture of you know diet and dopamine and the chemical the science behind mental illness. There is also something to be said about assessing and seeing a connection between. Environmental stimulus and factors, PTSD. Um, you know, you could have depression as an onset or as a symptom after having an assault or loss of a parent. I mean, these are these are environmental situations that have produced a change in your brain chemistry and potentially, maybe even brought out a diagnosis um, or elicited a diagnosis. So, how do, how do you explain? mental illness when it's something like environmentally triggered?
2: That's another wonderful answer, question. I, I I think I can go forever for that too. Yeah. But I, I'm really passionate for this because one of the things that, as we know, <clears throat> there's a part of the brain called amygdala. We have a lot of, lot of openings, like a kind of worm opening every day about amygdala. Amygdala is a part of the brain which light up with trauma, which light up with any kind of Um, stress so every time that even if you see a snake amygdala light up that's how the amygdala send all the impulse to hypothalamus which is our hormonal area to pituitary gland for the stress hormone stress hormone that asks your adrenal gland in your uh, little gland above your kidney area to produce cortisol and cortisol increase the blood pressure, palpitation, so that you can fight you know, remove flight. the stress, fight yeah. Flight yeah. and flight. So the amygdala is so important to that. So we found out with um, a lot of literature now, the PTSD, that uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, even in any abuse, this amygdala get completely deranged, okay? So this amygdala activation, or the light up of uh, these amygdala, an abnormality in the amygdala produce the abnormality in this, what they call HPA axis, hypothalamic pituitary adrenal, the stress axis. And that is the axis of depression, that is the axis of panic attack, that is the axis of anxiety, that is the axis of stress, OCD, everything that we do, this is the stress axis. So this is how even yoga helps because what yoga does is the increasing parasympathetic nervous system in autonomic system, Whereas the stress is the sympathetic nervous system, meaning increasing heart rate, increasing blood pressure. Whereas parasympathetic means decreasing heart rate, decreasing blood pressure. So our body is always in a balance between these two. When one goes up, that's how we get high blood pressure. We get uh, anxiety disorder. When you have too little of that, we get depression you know, apathy, bargains, all kind of things. So yes, there is a huge connection with the environment, even the drugs. So drug change, the chemicals in the brain. So there is an acute reaction of losing somebody, you know. So there's definitely psychological factors involved, which may not have immediate change in the brain chemistry. Like, you break up with someone, you'll be sad. You know, that's called situational anxiety. Even in DSM, we do that for brief reactive psychosis or brief anxiety disorder. And sometimes all you need is someone to counsel you, someone to support you, someone to, even if you have medication very mild, because those usually resolve spontaneously, because that's kind of physiological. The psychiatric disorder start when usually it has to distress your life. Depending on the diagnosis, it's more than certain duration. So it has to be at least six weeks or four weeks, You know, more than four weeks or more than six depending on what kind of diagnosis he was giving. The reason that time lapses, because that time needed also, to have brain changes that has changed not only just symptom, also on your other physical limitation in terms of activities of daily living, quality of life, interfering with your life. So that if somebody has, you know, hallucination and interfering with your sleep, then we, of course that has a priority of diagnosis psychotic disorder rather than a hallucination after you lose someone. Um, and you see you're, you lost your mom, you see your mom is coming to see you at night. That's grief reaction. That's kind of, we go through sometime in a physiological manner, but that should resolve after successful res- uh, you know, resolution of grief after most people say four to six weeks. But if it continues, and you have a prolonged grief, then of course you have to reevaluate it whether it is a psychotic disorder developing. And then if it continues like that, I don't wanna go into detail, then of course, diagnosis of schizophrenia and other serious psychotic illness can be coming. So the short answer for that is yes, You had a great question because environment, as we know now, even gene, genetic change doesn't have enough impact Sometimes You have to have environment involved with the gene. So you can have a s- gene for lung cancer. Unless you smoke, you may never get expressed for lung cancer. So it's like that. If you have Alzheimer's genes, sometimes, unless you have a certain really, really genetic type of Alzheimer's, which is not that common. If you have a garden variety of Alzheimer's like everybody has, those are called multifactorial gene, meaning gene is just one but huge is the environment, your diet, your exercise, your sedentary lifestyle, your um, heavy metals, you know, in your environment, uh, air pollution, all kind of things interact. So, yes, I mean, everything, brain kind of get insulted by all kind of environmental interaction, even when somebody yells at you because your brain react to that. That's why even verbal abuse is same as physical abuse sometimes, you know depending on our own tolerance of the brain. So this is why, I mean, I always tell the clinician that don't assess the severity of trauma because everybody, even a minor trauma can elicit PTSD to some people, you know, um, it depending on how is your brain reserve or how is your cognitive reserve especially if you have a family history of already have mood disorder or certain psychiatric disease um, and you are exposed to really, really emotional life situation, then, of course, that should be counted, you know, rather than looking at the more dry attitude uh, that what are the symptoms you have. So, yeah, I think the environment interacts so deeply with neuroscience. Uh, So, uh, again, um. There was some studies, and I'm not uh, sure I can give you reference for that, especially when I was at Tufts resident, there was a MRI study for jail, a prisoner with uh, antisocial personality disorder, their brain. And they found the changes, same thing that I was talking about, amygdala. I don't know how far did they do the follow-up on that study, but there is a lot of amygdala-related aggression that we see. And that's why um, we also feel that amygdala can do both way. It can make you aggressive, but it can also make you completely socially apathetic or isolated and kind of introverted or in drawn. So we are thinking about even autistic spectrum disease and connection with amygdala. It's funny thing, one, uh, one time my daughter, I was doing a PowerPoint presentation about amygdala and my daughter, she was in her teenage, she was going somewhere. She, was, she saw me. I was riding amygdala. She said, oh, you're doing a presentation for amygdala? I said, how do you know amygdala? She said, oh, we all know about amygdala. I said, how do you know? She said, we talk about it on Facebook between our friends. I said, Facebook? <laughs> I'm like, and she was in her teen, uh-huh. So she said, yeah, uh, we know that if you uh, amygdala is the reason that some of my friends are butter social butterfly and some of them are introverted. She was actually right because that's how the social you know uh, behavior nowadays we are thinking that connection with amygdala so this is a new horizon opening and uh, there's a tons of research in NIH for amygdala related disease even with autism with schizophrenia uh, the you know especially negative symptoms of schizophrenia where patients are uh, apathetic they can't express themselves so yeah it's a fascinating neuroscience field <laughs> Wow. So before we wrap
1: up, would you mind sharing with our listeners maybe some of your information, such as your website?
2: Sure. So um I'm a little crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I i'm I'm actually working in Full and I do a lot of uh, community presentation. I love to um, I love education. I've been in teaching for so many years. I have done faculty at Tufts Medical School and Hopkins, as well as Harvard Medical School and University of Massachusetts. Currently, I am involved with some education in Maryland. I was in Maryland for the last five years. I still go back and forth in Maryland. And so I do have a uh, website, which basically it's not really... Uh, For money profiting is more educational, website about my passion that integrated neuroscience passion. So, please check it out. It's simple Nicole Absar, N I C O L E, Nicole A B S A R, Absar M D.com. Thank you again, Dr. Absar, for joining us today. This has been fantastic. Thank you for having me.
0: All right. So as we wrap up the show, Carrie, do you want to go over your information regarding Fuller and the um, drop-in center?
1: Absolutely. So for folks that are interested in um, whether it be learning more about Dr. Abstar or some of our other doctors or just learning more about our services at Fuller, um, you can reach out in various ways. We have a new website, www.fullerhospital.com. Uh, you can also contact us at our main number, 833 833- Three fuller That's 833-338-5537. And if you'd like to speak to me, I'm extension 234, Carrie Ballou, Community Relations. Uh, We also have a Facebook page at Fuller Hospital as well. And we have and we participate in a fantastic community model, uh, Drop-In Center, that brings resources from around the area, including Fuller and several other resources to the community. One Wednesday a month, the last Wednesday of every month. It's called the You Are Not Alone drop-in center. And you can see that. um, You can check us out at at Attleboro Recovery on Facebook. Um, Drop in, get resources, free Narcan training and voluntary clinical assessment. We are there to help you. Austin, would you like to tell people about how they can learn more about downloading our podcast?
0: Uh, Yes. So if any listeners have any questions, you can email us at mentalillness at wararadio.com. You can also find out more about the show by going to wararadio.com. So you can find Exploring Mental Illness on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Google Play, TuneIn, and YouTube. If you like this show, please leave us a a rating or review on any of those platforms. Uh, The more reviews that we get, the more it gets out to the community. Also, we have a Facebook page. If you just go on Facebook and search for Exploring Mental Illness, then you will find us. Um, So yeah, stop by and leave a comment uh, or send us an email. Thank you, uh, Dr. Absar, for coming in. Uh, Everyone, be well. The contents of the Exploring Mental Illness podcast provides general information and discussion about medicine, health, and related subjects. The content provided in this podcast, its associated website, and any links material are not intended and should not be construed as medical advice. This podcast should not be used in any legal capacity. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on this podcast or its associated website. If the listener or any other person has a medical concern... They should consult an appropriately licensed healthcare professional. The views expressed on this podcast do not represent the views or opinions of Attleboro Access Cable Systems, Arbor Fuller Hospital, or their parents' corporations. The contents of the Exploring Mental Illness podcast and its associated website are copyrighted, Attleboro Access Cable Systems. The podcast may be redistributed in accordance with Creative Commons License 4.0.